0: All right, so this overall subject for the book of Colossians is, as you know, entitled, Christ Our Fullness. It's based on the well-known verse, in Christ dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead uh, bodily. We got started on this verse a while back uh, when we ran into the same word fullness, pleroma, in the original language, In John's prologue, chapter one, uh, where he says, we have all received one fullness after the other. And so Christ our fullness is really the ultimate, um, if you talk about a slogan, or if you go sloganeering, then it's the ultimate slogan that communicates in three short words uh, what the Christian life is all about. There are other things that fill us up. There are other things that distract, that displace, um, that call to us. Uh, But in the end, a Christian is one who realizes that the ultimate fullness uh, that they may experience in this life and, of course, the next life to come is to be in Christ. So we're looking at this uh, moving on. We will finish with chapter 2 today, Lord willing, and uh, we will move into uh, chapter 3 next week. But if you look in your Bible at uh, Colossians chapter 2, we read, not together, but you heard read uh, verses 20 through 23, the last closing argument of chapter 2. And we started talking about this two weeks ago about a question that must be answered. We're, we're looking at kind of the uh, a subtext here, which we've entitled uh, The Fullness of Grace. It's part of uh, the fullness which is ours in, in Christ. And Paul is uh, speaking out against the Colossian heresy which apparently involved, uh, had a stipulation that if you're going to be a a true Christian, uh, that there were certain rules and regulations that had uh, to be followed. And we've seen that it's difficult. uh, The Colossian heresy is, uh, it's difficult to actually pinpoint what it is that Paul's militating against here. The Colossian heresy and the Galatian heresy are somewhat different. In the Galatian heresy, in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul is mainly militating against a threat from the past, from the Judaizers, from the law. And in uh, the Colossian heresy, we have more of a present threat. There are elements of the past, from the Judaizers that intrude into it, but there is something new going on. There's a new synthesis, there's a new syncretism, there's a new mixture um, in the Colossian heresy. And we we pick through the text, trying uh, to discern exactly what it is. And uh, as we'll see, verse, um, verse 22 of this chapter, is one of the most difficult verses to understand in all of the New Testament writings. So we would like Paul to be clearer, um, but just as it is, if we're writing a letter to someone today and we're talking about an event that we know and the person who's going to receive the letter knows, there are some details that are left out because you don't need to share those details because it's common knowledge between the author and the receiver of the letter. So. In so many ways, we are reading between the lines, trying to discern exactly what it is that Paul is militating against. There are some, I think, general conclusions that we can safely arrive at, and it's focused, really, as we close in on the end of chapter two. Uh, We talk about this uh, the last few times as a question that must be answered. So if you look at verse 20, it starts with the word if, and we don't get to the question mark till we get to the end of verse 22. So you might uh, circle, it's a good thing to circle the word if, uh, as it begins in verse 20, and then circle the question mark at the end of verse 22, because the question is difficult to, parse out if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations and then Paul has really two parenthetical thoughts there the thought that is in quotes in verse 21 and then the thought that is in parentheses at the beginning of verse 22 so the question If you subtract those two parenthetical thoughts, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, then comes the question, there was the presupposition or the condition, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? So He's saying, if this is true, If you are uh, dead to the world, and if you are alive in Christ, and of course he's talked about this further back in chapter 2, about our identity with Christ um, when we are buried with him in baptism. Uh, Look at verse 12 of chapter 2, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, I, I've never seen anybody baptized where they just left the person down in the water. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should just to emphasize the point that we mean business here. <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> maybe a little bit of a brush with death would be appropriate, but but look at it in verse twelve. He says, uh, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is the Colossian possession. This is their benefit, whether they're aware of it or not. This is true, whether they they know it or not. Uh, This is a... uh, blessing that has been placed in their account, whether they ever take advantage of it uh, or not, it it doesn't uh, matter. What matters is, is that this is theirs. And Paul's objective, of course, is to point out the fact that it is theirs, that this new reality exists for them. Because of this new reality, they don't have to be subject to the rules uh, to be submitted to regulations according to human precepts and teaches. So in this paragraph, Hendrickson says, Paul condemns uh, the program of austerity recommended by the proponents of error. So this program of austerity, if you crawl back up further in the chapter, He uses the word asceticism, interestingly enough, uh, not only in verse 18, but he uses it once again uh, in verse 23 of chapter 2. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. Let no one pass judgment on you, is how he phrased it in verse 16. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Before that, he talked about questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He emphasizes this again by quoting, and we don't know why it's in quote, was it a popular phrase at the time, verse 21? Do not handle, do not taste, uh, do not touch. These have, he says, indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity. But wait for it. Here it comes drop It's the drop the mic moment. Some people never learn this. Some people are Christians their whole life, and, and they never learn this. They never understand it. Uh, it's the saddest thing that a Christian gets to the end of their life and they say things like, I, just, I sure hope that I live my life in such a way that I'm going to make it in. That is sad. It's common, right? It's common, but it, it may betray. And I, I'm, thank God, aren't you thankful that you're not the judge, I'm not the judge, All judgment has been committed to the Son. It's common, but it may betray the fact that a person never really understood what was theirs. Uh, What was theirs in this life. That understanding, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's more than a song, right? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And when we get to the end of our lives and we have some doubt, now there are a lot, of, a lot of people who, even in Pilgrim's Progress, when I've gone the last mile of the way, swimming the river. Swimming the river like for Alice may be different than swimming the river for 69-year-old Alan Ellis. We, we, we just, uh, the old song, for I know whom I have believed in, one of the verses talks about we don't know uh, how the final trip, the veil, will be broken. For some people, it's different. For some people, there's no struggle. For, for other people, even though they've been Christians all their lives, they may have they may struggle at, at the end. Um, but the one thing that we know, as the song concludes in the course, is I know whom I—we we heard it from the Apostle Paul this morning— I know whom I have believed in, and am persuaded. I'm convinced that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. Interestingly enough, in the ESV this morning, the word "day" is capitalized. It's not any regular day. It's the day. Um, it's the day of judgment. It's the day when, as C.S. Lewis says. Uh, when we will all have faces, when we will see him face to face. And some people um, will approach that final day uh, differently. But Paul's drop the mic moment at the end of chapter two is, he doesn't say they have comparative value. He doesn't say that Um, living your life according to certain rules, regulations, severity. He uses some very colorful language here in um, the original. Uh, Severity, asceticism. He uses uh, both in this passage the word body and the word flesh. There is a distinction in New Testament writing, particularly with Paul, uh, between our bodies, which are not... uh, Our bodies are fallen, but it is... It is what lives within our bodies that turns it into flesh. See, and so he uses both words in this passage. He's very, the words, if we took the time to go through the words that he uses in the original language, it's very pointed what what he's getting at. He doesn't say they're of comparative value. He doesn't say they have some value. I, I, I think of that moment in the first Godfather movie which he track with me now, and now you know how old I am, in which Michael Corleone is married to, uh, what was her name, her real name? Diane Keaton, yeah, thank you. She's playing Michael Corleone's wife, and apparently she got pregnant, had an abortion. He found out about it. That was the end of their relationship. She comes to Tahoe to see the kids. Are you tracking with me now? Can you see it in your mind? And the housekeeper, or Michael Corleone's sister, has allowed her to come on the property to see her children. And Michael Corleone walks in into the room. I think it's the kitchen by then. She's going out the back entrance, and she's leaving. She's uh, her sister-in-law, Michael's sister, is saying, who, "Who's what was her name? She played uh, Rocky's wife. Yeah." Talia, Talia Shire, maybe, I don't know, but she's, uh, she's rushing her out of the house, and then Michael walks in, and the look between the two, by this time, Diane Keaton is standing outside, she's gone through the back kitchen door, she turns around, and she says, he's still walking toward the door, and she says, Michael, you remember this? Let me try to act it out, you want to play, uh, Diane Keaton? She says, Michael, like pleading with him, you know, these are my children. We, we had a family. And he walks over as only um, Pacino can do. And he takes the doorknob and the camera's on her face and closes the door. Is, in, a, in other words, there is, there is no path to reconciliation. And this is what Paul does at the end of this chapter. He just says it has no value. If you're dealing with your body, your flesh, and you're dealing with it in this way, saying, I'm going to do better. So I had a doctor's appointment this past week, on my birthday, by the way. It's kind of eerie to have your doctor walk in the room and say, happy birthday. And I'm like, it can't be a happy birthday, otherwise I wouldn't be here. She says, happy birthday. I'm like, yeah, easy for you to say. You're not 69. I weigh more than I've ever weighed in my life, 242 pounds. I know I I look like I'm like 150, 160. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that affirmation. 242 pounds. But that was with my clothes on. And really, they had to stop me from taking my clothes off because I would say, that's not right. That's not fair. So uh, what did I weigh the last time? I was nine pounds lighter. I am not good at math. It was less. And my blood pressure's up. What did she say, 139? I'm going with 139. But... <laughs> So I said to her, I said, are you going to give me a good shellacking now? I said, you haven't, you've never given me, you know, the lecture about you need to lose weight, you need to stop eating junk food, you need to blah, 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 blah. She says, no, I only do that when I see patients that are going, going to do something. Do something stupid. And I'm, I'm starting to get the scene here. I only do that to patients that are going to do something stupid that they shouldn't do, which I took out a baby Ruth out of my pocket and started eating it. So I'm I'm going to lose weight. I'm on a diet. I'm hopeful, right? But diets are imperfect things. They 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 are difficult to. We all know that, right? Because why? Because. Like, I only ate, like, maybe a 40% long john this morning. And so now I, and Christy is killing me, actually. She has a whole corner that's reserved to me, a basket full of all this baby Ruth. What what was it? Lay's potato chips. You can't eat just one. You can't eat just one. So yesterday I'm working and I'm looking over at Hazelcrest. They got this old snack thing. Snack table over there. And I'm telling myself now at 10 o'clock, I'm going to take a 15 minute break and I'm going to have a little snack. And then lunch is going to be slim fast. And then at 2 o'clock, I'm going to have another break. And I'm going to, and so I'm over there looking at, you know how much like a small bag of potato chips is? 190 calories. So if you go in tomorrow, you'll see everything turned over on the back. I'm just looking at calories right now because I'm a newbie, right? So I, I see a bag of pretzels, which were stale, by the way. And you need to get some more bags of pretzel. Fifty calories. I'm like, what? Zero fat. So, so like, I'm looking in the refrigerator for some mustard to put on my pretzels because mustard is zero calories. You could eat like you, <laughs> you could eat like spoonfuls of mustard. Yeah, think about it. So then the two o'clock, though, feeding was problematic because I ate the last bag of pretzels. So I'm digging through and I saw a bag of popcorn and that was 70 calories. And I'm like, you know, this is good. So I have 50 calories for morning snack. What is a Slim Fast, I think is 160 calories and then 70 calories. The problem is, here is the problem. Brothers and sisters, can I share my heart with you? When I get home for supper, I am hungry. I'm hungry. And the, the thing about the slim fasting is, it says, eat a sensible supper. And I'm like, I don't want to tell you what I would like to tell those people. Eat a sensible supper, which means that I should eat probably about what half of what I normally eat. So we had Chinese last night. How many know? Very bad. Very bad. Probably, you know, there's a whole salt shaker of sh- salt in, in that thing, right? My normal routine is I only eat half of it, Right? Because I've been stuffing myself all day. We go to Freddy's, we go to Cane's, we go to Lion's Choice, right? So last night, I'm approaching the halfway mark, and I'm saying to myself, this is really good. They had the good cooks in the kitchen tonight. This is really good. And I started to intrude on transgress the halfway mark. I noticed what I was doing, and I said, so I took, what? what's that? What are those little four-pointed tenty things with the cream cheese in them? What are those? You all know. <laughs> crab, two crab rangoon come with them, so I ate one, and the other one I stuffed back in there. And so I got a less than half meal in the refrigerator, which Christy will ask me, on Wednesday or Thursday, are you going to eat this? And I'm going to say no, and she's going to throw it out. And I'm going to go. We've been taught, right? Eat what's set before you. Clean your plate. And we have to think about that now because that's killing us. So it may be better then for us to throw some food out or it may be better to cook smaller portion. The fact of the matter is, the reason we struggle with this is because it just really doesn't work. It doesn't work. Diets don't work. What is the answer? Well, they tell us that you have to change. Yes, I know, it's horrible. Uh, when you think, you have to change your habits. So I I have a rule right now, after supper, I'm not going to eat anything. No candy, no payday. Well, if that's what it takes, (laughs) you might see me like, I don't know, putting a piece of duct tape on my lips and going to bed so I don't get up in the middle of the night and say, I was sleepwalking and I guess I ate a bunch of stuff. Paul doesn't say... You know, you can, you can modify this. Um, let's not be too critical here. Let's try to reconcile with our good brothers. What does he say? Look at it at the end of uh, chapter two. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He doesn't say the body, but of the flesh. So when we talk about the Colossian heresy as opposed to uh, the Galatian heresy, we know that there's another element here. We know that this kind of severity, as Paul says, this kind of dogmaticism, these dogmatics, people who are very insistent, this kind of asceticism, he speaks of it, that it promotes self-made religion, that it's more than that, that there is a spirit behind it. And so he talks about the Stoicia. Uh, we've looked at this. He's talked about it twice. But he talks about these uh, elemental spirits of the world. If you look in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, he mentions angels uh, further back in this passage in verse 18. And it's interesting that Paul, uh, when he's dealing with the Galatian heresy, in the very opening verses of uh, the book, chapter 1, obviously, he says, I'm astonished, uh, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be a curse, and then he says it again. So there is this otherworldly uh, dimension. When we are really in our, I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna beat this thing, we, we hear it's endemic in Western culture. Uh, The idea um, that if you are a human being, you can do anything. The possibilities are endless. Now look, we we all need to have aspirations and goals and dreams and and it's good to have that kind of inspiration in our lives. But there may be another uh, dimension connected to that. And it's interesting that both in Galatian, Colossians uh, Colossi, Paul makes this reference uh, to angels, and we're not we're not talking uh, here. I, I think I think we would be right in saying that Paul is talking about fallen angels. As I study this passage and read what others have written about it, and I'm this morning I was just overwhelmed by um, by the different authors that I've read to, to really parse out uh, what Paul is saying to the Colossians, the, the time that they spend, the time they spend in education, the, the time they spend in research. And all of it accumulates, accumulates to our benefit. It's, it's all there. As, as Dan Scott has said so many times, all you got to do is read. We've seen a passage in Isaiah chapter 23 this morning that people say, we can't read. We can't read. But as as Dan has said, you know, it, it it's not really anything new. All you got to do is read. It's there. It's here in the book if we would take the time to read and study it. But I love this phrase, uh, Christopher cites, the attraction of rules for conduct. The attraction of rules for conduct. Now, this this seems uh, somewhat foreign to us. We don't. We we typically see rules as something that restrict. My fifth grade teacher. His name was Mr. Fapiano. You don't get a name like that in St. Louis. F A P P I A. And oh, we derisively behind his back called him Mr. Fat Piano because he is about that tall and he was, he was, he was an Italian who liked his pasta. One day we were down being quiet in the hallway and he blew up, got mad at us. This is when teachers could get mad and assigned every one of us that night. We had to write 500 times. I will not talk in the hallway. I did did not understand that. I I was not attracted to that rule of conduct. Because you know, anytime you you have to write the same sentence over and over again, by the time that you get about to number 49, it is illegible. And Mr. Fat Piano, uh, if it wasn't legible, he would make you do it over. There was no... I didn't see the attraction... It only, as you, as you age, and you try to negotiate life, that rules begin to become attractive, because rules have a way of excluding possibilities, excluding others, making the task more apparent, making the task uh, readily accessible. This is why rich people don't want to be taxed. <laughs> this is why rich people don't want to say, you know, what it's good enough. I got, uh, I got a home in Florida. I got a home in Colorado. I got a home in out by Lake St. Louis. That's enough for me. You know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll share the rest that I've got so that the, that the people who are uh, no, no, what did they do? Immediately they got, well, you know, if you worked hard, you could have the same thing. That spirit is very much alive in religion. It is very deceptive. It is very subtle and it's more than deceptive. It, it is more than subtle. It is seductive. It is, uh, you know, Dan talked about the Odyssey. And who is the hero in the Odyssey? Who they're, they're on a ship, they're passing this island, which is Odysseus. Yeah. And they're passing this island, which is, <laughs> don't you just love these stories? Which is filled with a bunch of female nymphomaniacs. The, the name of the island escapes me at this point. <laughs> Never been there. <laughs> Don't want to go. <laughs> but everybody on the ship is plugging their ears because there is the siren call of these women who will cause the men to lose their minds and crash the ship on the rocks trying to get to these women. And so he tells the men he's not going to plug his ears. He is going to be tied to uh, the mast of the ship so that he can hear the siren call, but he can't get loose to throw himself overboard. And in the movie, the old movie, which was made sometime in the 50s, you'll see him there and he's he's like in agony. So there is, you see, when the attraction of rules... We think that we can get away with something that really the truth of the matter is no one has been able to get away. No one has been able to successfully resist the siren call because behind the rules and the regulations and the asceticism and the severity and the dogmatic assertions, there is a spirit. And if you've ever talked to a, a convinced legalist, a person who felt that they were right. You immediately begin to uh, detect that. There's something more going on here. This is more than just a difference of opinion over what the scriptures actually teach. Sites goes on, uh, oh, Oh, look at this passage in Galatians chapter four. I want you to see that even though the Galatian heresy was pointed more to the past than the Colossian heresy is pointed to a threat in the present, that this otherworldly spirit is behind it. Look look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. Christians believe that there is only one God and Father, and He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But just like the Colossians, the Colossians lived in a world when, when they looked at the stars at night, they felt that those stars represented some spirit, maybe on the dark side, that was influencing their life, and if something bad was happening in their life, then they thought, "Well, that was that was an omen that they had not um, they had not lived their lives in a respectful manner, and so now they were paying the price." L- look what he says. Formerly, when you did not know God, this is why I say, when a person gets to the end of their their life and they say, "Well, I sure hope, I sure hope I'm going to make it in," you you immediately begin to think that. Does this person know the same God I know? It's an observation. It's not a judgment. Right? Because, because uh, we, we've heard it a million times before. You know, when you say to your child or your grandchild, hold my hand, we're going to cross the street. We know that we're going to hold on and not let go no matter what. Formally, he says, when you did not know God, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, and then Paul, I love this because he corrects himself here, or rather to be known by God. See, it's not, it's, we don't, our confidence is not in what we know about God. Our confidence is in that God knows us. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, and here he uses this word stoachia again, to the weak and worthless elementary principle of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Question mark. Here's the thing that, that aggravates us about Paul is that he, he asks these questions. He closes the door. He drops the mic. He just says, here, can you answer this question? If you've come to know God, uh, why are you attracted to rules and regulations that have behind them a spirit of another age? Being enthralled to degrees of various kinds. That kind of goes along with the phrase the attraction of rules for conduct. Being enthralled to decrees of various kinds. They are dead. The Colossians are dead to these elemental spirits, and they are alive in Christ, whether they know it or not. It would be a return to life in the world to attend such things or to take them seriously as worthy of following. So, really, a person whose life is, uh, we won't be able to finish today, aren't you disappointed in that? Uh, A person who lives their lives and they, are, they have circumscribed uh, their life by a fence. Uh, was reading a philosopher saying, you know, so a tiger is put in a cage. And we would say, they're not free, right? We would say the tiger, that's cruel. If you watch any of those old circus movies from the 50s, and you see the traveling circus and the wagon and the tiger or the lions in a cage. We would say that, that um, that's inhumane. Well, Of course, they're animals, so it's really not inhumane, but that, you, you catch what I'm mean. So we build a beautiful zoo, right? And we put them in a larger cage. <laughs> Do they have more freedom? Then the cage? Yeah. Are they free? This is uh, many centuries ago. This is what Jonathan Edwards pointed out, the difference between freedom and liberty. So a person can go through their whole life, living in a larger cage, exercising some degree of freedom. You know, we haven't been to St. Louis Zoo in, I don't know, years, but do they have polar bears there? So when you see the polar bear, you know, every so often you see some video from China, the pandas, right? And they're sliding on their back down a hill, and they've got this, I don't know, sugar cane. They're eating something and they're splashing around. You say, wow. Isn't that that makes me happy? <laughs> it's just the bigger cage. So you 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 can talk to legalists of all different stripes, all different callings, all different degrees of intensity. Some of them are very cordial. But in reality, they don't understand the fullness of grace, and behind that, they don't understand the fullness of grace because they don't understand the fullness of Christ. You can meet legalists who are very friendly, and you you walk away and you say, "Well, maybe I was wrong. You know, maybe maybe I've gone down the path of grace too far." Do you know the Son of God as your shield, the glory, and lifter of your head? Do, do you really exalt? We, we'll hear it during communion. Do you really hear it, exalt when, when, you, when you sing the song, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. They're new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, great is thy faith. Do you, is that the faithfulness that only extends to the boundaries of the larger cage you live in? or, or do, you, do you see the love of God? It's like the writer said, I looked into the depths, but I could never make out the bottom. Do you, do you understand that grace is fathomless? There's a wideness, the old Quaker song said. There's a wideness in God's mercy. How could it be otherwise? Amen. Thank you, Father, that you impress on us day by day. Rules, regulations, asceticism, severity, being proper. Do not equate to the fullness of grace, which is ours by virtue of the fullness of Christ. Help us not to fight that battle. You fought that battle on the cross and won. Help us not to fight it over and over and over again, because we, Father, will we'll always find ourselves being defeated. It has no value has no value. Paul, who knew what it was like to try to live as a good man under the law, tells us it has no value. And therefore, Father, we hear his voice. We hear your voice speaking through him that it has no value. We once again affirm, we lean on you. We look to you. There is no other Savior other than the one who gave his life for us on the cross, and we thank you for that. We Thank you for that, and it is in his name that we pray, in Jesus' name.